Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? It comes from recording high bandwidth input from the brain, software that decodes that and converts it into um, actions. Moving a mouse or writing an email. Moving a mouse, moving a cursor. And there will for sure be a next generation of the technology that closes the loop, so to speak, and allows patients and users not just to have the visual output of what happens on the screen, for example, as the feedback, but in a more intuitive way, Uh, to have touch and visual and auditory feedback. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. How are you all doing? We have a fabulous, fabulous show for you this week. We're going to take a little detour away from AI this week. But worry not, we have some amazing AI folks already in the pipeline, already in the can, as they say. So that'll be coming you know, in the weeks to come. So just trust me on that. But this week, we're talking proper science fiction. Not this AI stuff, real science fiction stuff, brain-computer interfaces. You know, chips that you put in the brain that translate your thoughts alone to actions from writing an email or moving a cursor or even driving a car. Long-time listeners will know that I'm just fascinated with this technology. We've had a bunch of folks on who have startups in this world working on it in some way, shape, or form. And this week's guest is a first for us. His name is Ben Rappaport. He is a neurosurgeon, brain surgeon. He's also studied electrical engineering. So he's uniquely placed here for kind of taking on this task. And he's the co-founder of a company called Precision Neurosciences. And what they have invented is a new type of device that is basically like a, almost like a film. Think of it like saran wrap, a little piece, you know, about the size of half of your thumb. You make a cut in the skull. I guess you'd have to saw that. I'm not really sure how you do that. But you insert it, sits on top of the brain, and it's packed full of electrodes. And they pick up the signals that are coursing through your gray matter and translate those signals into actions. It's an amazing technology. And I was particularly jazzed to speak with Ben because I just spent some time last month with three different guys, all of whom are severely paralyzed and all of whom who have brain implants. There's only a few dozen people in the world who have them. I spoke to three of them. These are not precisions 
implants it's another companies we've had on the podcast blackrock neurotech but these guys are some of the first in the world who have this stuff implanted and they talked about just how powerful it is to be able to regain some independence to be able to write an email on their own to play a video game to make some art to do something to basically get back just a little bit of what they've lost so precision expects to have its first device in a human this year and like many other in this field they're focused again on folks who have had brain or spinal injuries or other kind of conditions that they can help kind of restore function and give people back again these powers that they may have lost or never had so it's really an amazing technology and it's real this is actually real and it's coming so here to talk about all of that and just to give you a glimpse into this wild future and again just this uh, potential revolution for tens of thousands of people who are paralyzed or who have some other kind of condition that really uh, limits their life in pretty terrible ways. This is all coming, and so we talked to Ben about it, and also how he ended up starting a company to do this, to implant chips in people's brains, which is not something that, you know, you do every day. So here he is, Ben Rappaport, co-founder and CEO of Precision Neurosciences. Enjoy. Very excited to have you on because over the past year or two i definitely haven't had everybody in this world on the podcast but i've had a lot you haven't had me yet so you no, haven't had exactly exactly yeah. but we had tom oxley from synchron on last year we had the guys from blackrock neurotech have not had anybody from Neuralink yet but that's not surprising because you know not really into press um <laughs> and then also blue water open water as well a few years ago so we just I'm fascinated by the idea of a brain-computer interface, and it feels like whenever I tell anybody kind of out in the world, like, you know, this is actually happening. This is like, yes, it's extremely rare right now, but there are people who can control a mouse with their mind or drive a car with their mind, and people are just like completely blown away, you know, for obvious reasons. But I'd love to just understand kind of if you could give me a like a brief history of you and what you guys are doing at Precision and kind of where you are. Because obviously the where you are is quite important, given that, you know, it feels truly like magic and feels like something tr- totally futuristic and just trying to understand kind of where you are in this very long winding process to getting this into products, into people, into people's brains. Absolutely. You know, ha- happy, to, happy to start right there. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Brain-computer interfaces are real today. And as you said, the number of people who actually can control a digital ecosystem with the direct brain-to-computer interface is small right now, but there are a number of them out there. And fundamentally, what we're doing at Precision is to try to translate the advances that have made those one-offs possible into a real product that can become a medical standard of care. And you're based in New York, correct? Yes. Uh, Precision Neuroscience is based in New York. We have an office in New York and an office in Mountain View. Uh, so we have teams on, on both coasts. And, uh, and we have a number of other members of the team who are elsewhere. We have uh, an electronics group based in Minneapolis, and we have a software group in Indianapolis. Both coasts and right in the middle. Both coasts and, and the middle. And uh, we really tried to, and I think have succeeded in finding extraordinary talent. And that's one of one of the ingredients 
necessary to uh, to do what we're doing, which is to bring computer interfaces from the world of academic possibility into medical standard of care. So where are you guys as a company now? So I was just in, I was recently just in Austin for South by Southwest because there was this panel, I think they called it Superhuman, but it was three guys mm-hmm. who have the implants from BlackRock Neurotech. And these are mm-hmm. still kind of like, big bolts sticking out of somebody's head and then mm-hmm. you have to plug it in and then mm-hmm. th- through the power of algorithms etc those electrodes that are implanted in people's brains can be translated into actions typically with some kind of a digital device mm-hmm. and it is quite impressive but also the the limitations of it are very obvious right like you have to be plugged into a big machine and you also have like an open skin edge around this bolt that is always constantly wanting to close. And you just mm-hmm. have to, you know, it's a kind of, some of them have had them in for years, but it's not, it's not like a, obviously a perfect user experience as it were by any sense. So kind of what have you guys created? What does it look like? How big is it? And how does it work? So um, we are about 25 people. We're venture backed. So we've raised a bit over $50 million over the last two years in two rounds. And the last round closed the beginning of this year. And we are anticipating this year, 2023, having a device in human patients for the first time. Okay. So our roadmap carries the technology through a number of different generations. And one of the things that we've tried very carefully to architect is a roadmap that takes us through value generation to patients and their care at each step in the development of the technology. And that is fundamentally important. You know, it's very difficult to bring a technology from kind of concept to complete fruition in the ways that you kind of alluded to hmm. in mentioning the limitations of the brain-computer interface technology as, as it exists today, i.e. wired, percutaneous, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of us in the space acknowledge that the device of the future is a wireless device that allows the user, the patient, to transmit data in a bidirectional manner from the brain through the interface to external devices and uh, to receive data from the outside world in, in, a, in a similar way. But as you mentioned, there are a number of people who have achieved benefit through percutaneous, mm-hmm. transcutaneous interfaces. And I think the first, the first generation of devices will have been of that nature. So our first devices will be percutaneous. What does percutaneous mean? Meaning that there will be a, a, a lead that comes through the skin. Got you. To connect to external electronics. Okay. And that will be a stepping stone to a fully implantable, completely wireless system that we're also currently developing. Something that kind of communicates with a device via Bluetooth or something. Or something like that. Yes, exactly. Completely wirelessly in the way that you would imagine a seamless interface of this nature would work. Just magically works from the right. perspective of the, of the user. I think you might be the only neurosurgeon that I've come across thus far who's running one of these companies. There's tech guys, there's kind of hardware guys, there's entrepreneurs, there's people, you know, with, you know, big medical teams, et cetera, but you're trained in operating on the brain. I am a neurosurgeon. I'm an MD, PhD trained neurosurgeon. So my, uh, my background is uh, I'm a neurosurgeon who specializes in minimally invasive brain surgery. And I'm also an electrical engineer. My PhD is in electrical engineering with a focus on developing brain implants. And was that the plan? Because those are two not obvious uh, bedfellows, those two. Um... That was the plan. That, that was that was the plan. I, in a way, that was the sort of uh, 
I can't necessarily say lifelong dream, but that was a very, very long-term dream. My dad is actually a neurologist who okay. uh, also was an electrical engineer. So um, I grew oh, up in a family of, uh, of doctors and engineers. So was your dad like bouncing you on his knee and being like, one day, son, <laughs> we're going to have brain implants. You know, in, in, the way that, in the way that kids grow up doing what their parents do, uh, my, my father is an expert in electrophysiology. And so... And what is that? Electrophysiology is the electrical engineering of the human body. I see. And as you know, the, the brain is a very electrical organ. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not an exclusively electrical organ. It has plumbing systems and mechanical systems and hydraulic systems and so on. And of course, it has all of the biochemical systems that, that make up a living, a living being. But one of the things that really makes the brain very special and unique is that it is an information transfer, information processing organ. And a lot of, not exclusively, but a lot of that information transfer happens electrically. And so there is a lot of electrical engineering that goes into understanding how to take care of people who have disorders of the brain. Right. And, um, you know, there's been a, more than a century of work on the special aspects of the brain as they relate to the electricity of the brain, let's, to, to put it in, in those terms. And so electrophysiology is kind of the, the term for that. Got you. Disorders like seizures, for example, highlight the electrical nature of the, mm. of the brain. There are special tools that, that have been developed uh, over the decades for um, interfacing with the brain medically through its electrical systems. And in a way, brain-computer interfaces, the way we talk, we're talking about them now, represent kind of a next generation of electrical diagnosis and electrical treatments of our ability to interface with the brain. So you get into neuroscience, neurosurgery, when did you decide, okay, I'm going to actually do this. I'm going to pursue both of these paths, electrical engineering as well, because I think this something, an implant will be possible, or there is a whole kind of waterfront of possibility here that is not being tapped right now. Was there a kind of, was there a, a breakthrough or a moment where you're like, oh, I, I can see the vague outlines of the future here. And so this is what I'm going to pursue. Absolutely, there was. And uh, maybe I can tell the story from my perspective. Yeah. You know, in a way, it's it's just a question of what do you grow up seeing as uh, as the most amazing thing that's going to happen, in, you know, in in your lifetime in in the area that you're interested in. And that that was the way I saw it, really, in the early 2000s, as I was finishing college. The early outlines, as you put it, of what was going to be possible in brain-computer interfaces were beginning to emerge. There were early results in the neuroscience community. At that time, it was primarily work in, in non-human primates mm. that was showing that uh, neuroscience was beginning to scale in a way that it hadn't in previous decades. And what I mean by that is that neuroscience has always been kind of interdisciplinary in the way that it attracts electrical engineers. That has been for the forever of neuroscience. Uh, as long as it's been as, as it's existed, it has been very much a field that attracts engineering. And with that, all of the tools of computer science of whatever the moment has been, you know, for for quite a few decades. And I would say in the late '90s, the scale at which neuroscience could be done electrophysiologically changed fundamentally from being able to talk to or listen to small numbers of neurons to being able to talk to or listen to 
hundreds or thousands of neurons. And that's really thanks to both electrode technologies changing, and I know you've spoken to the folks at, at BlackRock, and the Utah Array is yeah. certainly a part of that story. And uh, the computer science that's been able to process those data also in the last you know two decades has changed. And I saw that beginning to change in a really, a really high impact way in the early 2000s. And that was when I was uh, deciding to become a doctor, really. But I knew when I started medical school that I was starting medical school to try to build the brain-computer interfaces of the future and to bring them into clinical practice. I, I knew that it was not a one-person endeavor to do that, but I thought that it would require change from the inside, that at least part of the story was going to be people who were deeply trained and engaged in clinical neuroscience, and in particular neurosurgery, were going to be a part of the story because it has, and, and I, I thought it would take a combination of skills in engineering and material science and all kinds of other domains of not even just science. I mean, it's a t tremendous endeavor to bring kind of a conceptually new thing into uh, medical standard of care. But I, I did have the sense that I wanted to contribute from the side of that, that I knew something about growing up. Right, right, right. But yes, it's been a more than 20 year journey. So what is your guys' approach and how is it different? Because we've had Tom Oxley on. He's doing, he's going in through the jugular and putting in, you know, a little kind of stent-like device that can do some basic things. You've got BlackRock Neurotech, which is, you know, they look like, and this is not to be denigrate, but almost look like um, like Frankenstein neck bolts, but on the head. And then you unscrew that and then you port that in. And that's how the guys connect to the system that then interprets and allows them to do some of, the, some of these amazing things. What is your approach? How is it different? Because obviously all of these, or at least not um, synchron, but uh, the others, I mean, they all require brain surgery, which is not a small thing. Right. So our technology definitely requires brain surgery. And our approach has been to design a minimally invasive interface. Our kind of guiding philosophy is that brain-computer interfaces are meant to heal something mm -hmm. in the brain right now. Fundamentally, these are meant to be medical devices. And it's very important to us, at least in the state of the technology as it exists today, to not harm the brain as we try to yeah. heal it or enhance it. And fundamentally, that is what makes the device minimally invasive. That's what defines minimal invasiveness, is the non-damaging nature of the interface. And what does that mean for precision today? We have developed a, uh, a microelectrode array that conforms to the surface of the brain, meaning it, it tightly hugs the, or gently hugs the surface of the brain. So it's not, it's not hard. It is a soft, pliable film. Mm -hmm. Think of it kind of like saran wrap. Okay. And it gently conforms to the brain surface. And embedded in that film are, in the current generation, 1,024 microelectrodes. And they sit on the brain surface, they conform to the brain surface, and they can listen to, uh, I, I say listen to by analogy, but meaning record electrical activity mm. from the brain at a very, very fine-grained, spatially resolved level. And they can also stimulate the brain. And to give you a sense of scale, each of the microelectrodes in, in this surface microelectrode array are the size of, kind of close to the size of an individual neuron. Oh, I was thinking I was ready for like human hair or something, but neuron feels right. So, so, so the the thickness of the film 
is the fraction of the thickness of a human hair. The thickness of the saran wrap. The thickness of the saran wrap is the fraction of a of the thickness of a human hair. And how big is that? Like, what surface area does it cover? The array itself is about the size of your thumb knuckle, but it's modular. So the modules can be tiled together. So each thousand twenty four electrodes are embedded in a surface area about the size of your uh, your thumbnail or your your thumb knuckle. Mm-hmm let's say your thumbnail or two thumbnails or something like that. Mm-hmm. But we can put them together side by side or end to end, kind of like tiles. And so we can, you know, a thousand electrodes at a time, we can cover large uh, swaths of brain surface area. But this is in a way that is very, very gentle. It conforms to the brain surface. It does not penetrate the brain. And so it leaves no scar in the brain. We make an incision in the dura, which is the membrane that covers the brain and protects the brain. And we slide the array in a tiny little slit incision in the skull and a tiny little slit incision in the dura. And through that minimally invasive surgical approach, which we developed at Precision, we are able to deploy many thousands of electrodes onto the surface of the brain in a way that doesn't damage the brain, but can interface with it in a very, very spatially fine-grained, spatially high-resolved manner. And that kind of highlights one of the important trade-offs in uh, modern brain-computer interfaces, because the, the key to achieving high levels of functionality in brain-computer interfaces is data. It's data transfer. Yeah, it's the electrodes, basically, right? It's the electrodes and all of the software and uh, signal processing that goes into processing what what comes off the electrodes or what goes into the electrodes. But fundamentally, a brain-computer interface is an interface. It has to be a bidirectional link between, you know, a computer system and the brain. And high levels of performance are, are going to come from, we already have seen this, you know, are going to come from high bandwidth interfaces. Yes. And so the goal was to develop to develop a very, very high bandwidth interface that is maximally safe and yet uh, can transmit very, very high levels of bandwidth, safe to the patient, but highly, highly functional. And so at Precision, we have, uh, we've tried to thread that needle by uh, a very, very, high channel count, meaning high number of electrode interface that does that still does not damage the brain and can be inserted in a surgery that um, ultimately, I think, will be under an hour, probably start to finish and yet can deliver many thousands of electrodes over, over you know, significant areas of, of the brain that need to be interfaced with. And how, how big is the incision? How big is the hole in the head, so to speak? To insert a thousand uh, electrodes, we need to make about a centimeter and a half long incision in the scalp and it's an incision rather than like you're drilling a hole exactly it's not it's not a hole per se it's a it's an incision in the scalp and an incision in the bone so it's a let's say a less than a less than an inch long uh in slit incision in the bone by a, about a millimeter in width so uh very very minimally invasive and then the port that comes out what does that look like is it just like you know a usb you know, or something, or like, you know, like an iPhone charger? I won't say exactly what the connection is. Ultimately, it will be wireless, so there will be no port. But we are developing a fully integrated system that, uh, so what comes out of the, what sits on the brain surface is many, many tiny little electrodes. And what comes through the bone is a little ribbon cable that's a fraction of the width of a human hair. And that connects to electronics that are located between the skull and the scalp. Doing it that way, does that help with rejection 
or the vi like the long-term viability of the tech in the body? There are many layers to this. Uh, so there is a question of device longevity in the body. There's the question of safety and biocompatibility mm -hmm. of the materials. And there's a question of safety from the standpoint of where electrical power is located. With power comes heat dissipation and so on. And so we try to not locate any powered electronics within the cranial cavity, i.e. in see. contact, in physical contact with the brain. So what's in physical contact with the brain is the electrodes themselves, but they are connected to uh, the powered part of the electronics through the skull and that the powered electronics sit between the skull and the scalp. So there's no heat dissipation in close proximity to the brain, if that makes, if that makes sense. Yep. And then from the standpoint of safety and biocompatibility and so on, the only materials that require the highest level of validation from that standpoint are the flexible substrate that contains the electrodes in contact with the brain. And can you say what that flexible substrate is made of? The, the kind of the... Yes, we published on that. Uh, the flexible substrate is, is, is made of polyimid. It's a flexible polymer. If you want some intuition, it's kind of like, if you remember, you and I are both old enough to have used Fujifilm. Mm -hmm. uh, so it looks kind of like camera film. Old school camera film for the young for the young yes. listeners who right. never <laughs> used actual film. Uh, right. yeah, old school camera film. Yeah. Got you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And that electrode count, that 1,000 plus... Mm -hmm. How does that compare to what is kind of, I guess we'd call state of the art. I think that's what BlackRock would be the highest count. And I think it's around something similar, is it not? Around the, a thousand. The Utah array has, uh, depending on how you count it, 96 or a hundred electrodes. And the precision array will have a thousand twenty-four uh, electrodes per module. So if, you, if you're counting sheer number of electrodes, the precision module has, you know, 10 times the number of electrodes as what is currently being used in like the most advanced way by like the guys that i just met correct by the way uh we're very close friends at precision with the folks at blackrock talk to them frequently work together and i hope we'll work together in, in certain ways in the future same goes for tom oxley and the folks at synchron and metangle and, and mm. the team at paradromics this is a field that a lot of collaboration is going to be needed over the coming years to bring 
these devices into medical standard of care. And so obviously there's a certain amount of friendly competition, but nevertheless, there's a tremendous spirit of collaboration, I think, in all the ways that we possibly can, because goodness knows there is a lot that stands between us and uh, and helping the patients who need help. And I think we all we all realize that. Another thing I'll say is I don't think this is, and I think I think all the aforementioned people will agree, this is not a winner-take-all field. There are a lot of people who stand to benefit from patient-facing brain-computer interfaces in the years to come. And there is no one system that is going to be a one-size-fits-all system. So I do think that uh, as the technology matures in the years ahead, uh, some of the different techniques and technologies, uh, electrode types and so on, will find their niches. So we have made a trade-off at Precision to record from the surface of the brain. And that means that we do not listen to individual action potentials, individ- the individual voice of one neuron at a time. I see. Which the BlackRock array, the Utah array is designed to do. So the, the signal, you have more signal, but it's less precise. I wouldn't say it's less precise. It's not designed for single neuron recording. What does that mean in practical terms? It is purpose designed for brain computer interfaces, not necessarily for fundamental neuroscience in the way it was done in the late 90s, early 2000s, where there was a focus on listening to one neuron at a time. What we know now is that, uh, especially if you're looking to design a, a brain computer interface that enhances or restores communication, speech, or some kind of motor function, or the proxy of motor function, i.e. the ability to interact with a digital ecosystem, for example, to use a mouse or a keyboard or to achieve that level of functionality through a neural prosthetic that simulates the action of the hand or the arm or the leg. Hmm. Uh, The brain's ability to coordinate the muscles of articulation, the tongue, lips, or the fine motor function of the hand, fingers, and so on, that level of coordinated activity takes place at the level of hundreds or thousands of neurons, not at the level of individual neurons. And so if you want to interface with that level of activity, uh, you don't need to, or even really necessarily want to listen to one neuron at a time. And if you look at the science of what's been done in the last 25 years of brain computer interfaces, even those interfaces, you know, and I, I think if, if my peers were on this, you know, we'd have a nice friendly discussion about, about this, but I, I don't think that what I'm saying is going to be too controversial. Even if you look at the, that early work of um, using microwires or using the Utah array to listen to the brain to perform the function of an early neuroprosthesis, you're not always listening to one neuron at a time. You are often averaging the signals from small numbers of neurons surrounding each electrode, not necessarily caring exactly what neuron is firing on a given day. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But you know, the electrodes move over time, the brain moves over time, the electrode moves relative to the uh, neurons. And so what you record from one day to the next is not exactly the same. Even with those you know, very precise, sharp microelectrodes that penetrate the brain, you, you don't always have a, the most stable signal from one day to the next. Everybody, we've known that for decades. But what we have found is that the coordinated activity and being able to record the coordinated, listen in real time to the coordinated activity of hundreds or thousands of, elect- of neurons at a time provides a very robust and accurate signal hmm. for controlling a digital interface, a neuroprosthetic, a mouse, keyboard, you know, or even as we've learned in recent years to simulate speech. Well, that's what I was going to say. So I spent some time with 
three of the patients that BlackRock has, so guys with implants, and they said they were talking about, you know, how freeing it was to be able to actually do something on their own, whether it's write an email, play a video game, paint digitally. Because, they're, of course, these are all people with uh, severe spinal cord injuries. Mm-hmm. They can't really use their hands. Uh, they're paralyzed. So speaking about those differences, you know, that tenfold increase, but perhaps you're not going inside the brain, so the signal is different. Do you have a sense of what this will allow you, a patient to do that is different than what is allowed today? Uh, I think we're going to be able to provide a very, very high level of functionality to that kind of patient that you described Mm. to young people with spinal cord injury. I mean, that, that is a group of people who we really care about providing high levels of independence and dignity to and a return to work as they may have once known it or or envisioned it. So you think that level of is possible? Oh, it's definitely possible. Because I think now, at least talking to those guys, is that, you know, they can do some amazing stuff, mm-hmm. but they always have to be in the lab and plugged in, et cetera. But it also is quite exhausting because you have to kind of, in a way, think really hard to get the cursor to do exactly what you want it to do. Like there's a whole, there's a strain, a mental strain to try to kind of guide these things with your mind. We too have spent a lot of time with the people who who are, are the intended users of the early and later generations of the technology. And that has been an incredibly important part of the work at Precision is engaging with the communities of users that we anticipate yeah. working with trying to understand and work with them to understand what kinds of functionality they need. And of course, that's going to evolve over time. But what they want and what they need in a first generation product and a second generation product and so on. And those collaborations, which continue, are incredibly important to understanding how to design uh, the product that we're, that we're bringing to market and, and what I think will be multiple generations of, uh, of interface. Look, I mean, ultimately, 2023 and 2024 and beyond. Um, it's one thing to talk about what we anticipate happening, and it will be another thing to just, just to look at the data. And I think uh, I, I really, you know, I hope you'll you'll have me back on the show in For sure. you know, 12 or 18 months, and we'll be able to talk about some things that I, I anticipate happening for Precision and our collaborators in the, you know, year, year and a half ahead. And then we'll be able to talk about what we've done instead of what we anticipate doing. And ultimately, you know, the proof has to be imp- empirical proof. You know, we've done a lot of animal work to date, some of which we've published on, some of which we will be publishing on. And so we have uh, many reasons to anticipate very high levels of, of functionality. So there's, a, there's one thing controlling kind of a cursor or whatever, a digital device with your thoughts. And then there's another, one of the guys I met, he has one, I think it's in the sensory cortex in the front. Mm-hmm. And that allowed him to very famously control a robotic hand that shook Obama's hand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he said when he, when Obama shook his robotic hand through the magic of this kind of the the algorithms and where this they had placed these sensors, he had felt he felt the pressure of Obama's mm-hmm. hand on the robotic hand. A semblance of the sense of touch even though it's not even his limb. Correct. So there's one thing of restoring your ability to communicate via digital devices. There's another thing about, you know, kind of restoring some kind of movement or sense of something like that. Do you anticipate that or what does that look like? That's a great question. And I think it boils down to the um, input and output nature of a brain-computer interface. Mm -hmm. And we talked at the beginning about the need for a bi-directional interface. 
And in the neural interface world, the sensing or reading function of the interface is in a way much more advanced today. Our ability to record from, listen to the input on many electrodes, what the brain, what the brain is doing and saying electrically in the region of many, many electrodes that we have a better handle on how to do at, um, in a high throughput manner. The ability to stimulate the brain, to write into the brain. So that's the read function. Mm. Uh, and in a way, if we, if, you, if we think back to the analogy to gene sequencing, we were very good at reading the genome, you know, and, and editing the genome, writing new material to the human genome has taken us, you know, as a society, you know, much longer to do with precision. And, you know, it's an imperfect analogy, but just to give you a sense that the biological read and write functions, as we've learned them over time in, in different domains, it's not such a surprise that there is some asymmetry in the read and write, if you think about it that way. Right. So you kind of, in that analogy, you have to learn your ABCs before you write a novel. Maybe. Yeah, that, that's proven to be the case uh, in a couple of different fields. And so, yes, in short, the precision array is designed to record and stimulate. There are electrodes that are optimized for recording and there are electrodes that are optimized right. for stimulation. And we have built the system with the anticipation of being able to stimulate the brain. And it's that kind of stimulation, that kind of input to the brain that theoretically allows one and in practice, you know, has allowed a few uh, people to have feedback, you know, touch type sensory feedback. The motor output converting intention and thought into action is based on reading or recording brain signals and decoding them. Right. And the sensory feedback comes from stimulating the brain. And this is a, I'll say two things about this. One is that this concept of record and decode as therapy mm. is actually very new in medicine. And we talked about how um, electrophysiology as a field is more than a century old. And right. the ability for, you know, for doctors to impact patient care and understand the brain and diagnose and treat disease through electrical recordings and electrical stimulation, that's old. And there are, there are there's whole, you know, two generations of technology, not even just in neurology and neurosurgery, also in cardiac applications, in which the electrical nature of the body is, is harnessed and stimulating therapies, you know, have delivered benefit to patients. The cardiac pacemaker is a great example. Um, deep brain stimulator for Parkinson's disease is another example. And so for a generation or two, there has been this notion that the electrical therapies are coming from stimulating the body. And in the first generation of brain computer interfaces, actually the therapy, as we've just been discussing it, mm -hmm. comes from recording and decoding yep. brain activity, not from stimulating. It comes from recording high bandwidth input from the brain, software that decodes that and converts it into um, actions. Moving a mouse or writing an email. Moving a mouse, moving a cursor, simulating speech or text to, to communicate. That record and decode is the nature of the therapy. And there will for sure be um, a next generation of the technology that closes the loop, to, so to speak, and allows patients and users not just to have the visual output of what happens on the screen, for example, as the feedback, yeah. but in a more intuitive way uh, to have touch and visual and auditory feedback. Do you think this ultimately leads, and I'm asking for one of the guys, one of these brain computer face computer interface pioneers, one of the guys I interviewed, he was disabled at 18. He's now in his early thirties. He's like, what I want is an exoskeleton. Mm -hmm. 
you know, to your point around stimulation, and this is obviously probably decades away if it ever happens, but is there, is there a, a, a path, a development path that you could see where ultimately you could get, you know, an exoskeleton that you can control with your mind so you can actually, you're disabled, you know, your muscles don't work, your bones don't work, but you can kind of strap into an exoskeleton and control it and move around? I think the short answer to that is yes. And I, I don't think it's so far off. You know, Nathan Copeland is the individual you're referring to who who, uh, who shook <laughs> President Obama's hand, and he's a tremendous proponent. Yes, he was the one who was asking about the exoskeleton. Yes, I guess he's asked you about it. <laughs> I figured. No, I, I haven't spoken to Nathan per- personally, although okay. I, I hope I will in the near future. Ian Burkhardt is also another yep. brain computer interface pioneer who we have worked closely with. I have tremendous admiration and respect for these people, and you have to understand, you know. These are pioneers. You know, they took on tremendous risk to be the pioneers of the new technology in its early stages, not necessarily knowing whether it would benefit them at all. It could go worse. Like they had their whole lives taken from them and it could have gone worse. And yet what they've done is they've unlocked scientific knowledge and possibility and insight. And I think their continued advocacy in this area has given rational hope to, Mm. you know, a generation of patients who I hope will be able to, to help treat. And I do think that there already is emerging and uh, hopefully will continue to flourish an ecosystem of neurotechnology. And, uh, you know, many of us uh, who are engaged in the field know each other and work with one another. And I think there's, there is tremendous synergy. You know, we're not at Precision currently building an exoskeleton, but on some level, the output from the black box doesn't really matter. As long as there's a standard uh, and a standard handshake between one device and another, I could totally see us delivering control signals to almost any peripheral, if you want to call it that, that you can imagine. And they, you know, exoskeletons for uh, spinal cord injury patients and patients of different kinds already exist. There are a number of companies that that make exoskeletons. And remember that to walk in an exoskeleton, and and you know, you can some of these devices are already on the market. Um, mm. You know, helping patients many of them can deliver tremendous functionality without having neural control. Right. They rely on uh, mechanics and where the center of gravity is and, you know, gyros and uh, MEMS accelerometers and things like that to function. And so how to enhance that functionality with the brain control signal we can dream about and hopefully we'll be really engineering in the years to come. But I think the short answer to your question is yes. So the other two areas I wanted to touch on, Obviously, Neuralink, you were at Neuralink, according to your LinkedIn, for what, about a year? Somewhat more than a year, yeah. Yeah, I was there from the, in the years spanning 2016 to 2018. Right. And so, obviously, Elon Musk is, very, is a very noisy person, <laughs> but he also has a habit of delivering on his outlandish um, ideas. But his whole thing, and this is particularly pertinent right now, given that we are in the midst of all this AI explosion, and everybody's saying, oh, the world's about to end, or oh, this is going to be the greatest thing ever, or somewhere in the middle, whatever it may be, is this idea that, you know, this will become an enhancement that normal people will want, or, you know, will accept, or become this thing. And I'm just trying to understand, like, do you see that? Or what is your view of, of, okay, we have this whole universe of people who have these horrendous diseases or tragedies, and we're helping them regain some function versus this is the way we save humanity and merge with AI because we're all going to have a chip in our brain. 
Well, just to touch on a couple of things. So yes, I was I was one of the eight members of the Neuralink co-founding team back in 2016. Neuralink is an incredible place, was an incredible place. And uh, one of the things I can say about it is that over the years, it has attracted tremendous talent. Mm -hmm. And I think it has helped develop a very high level of skilled interest in the field of neurotechnology. Yeah. And uh, we have a number of people at Precision now who uh, spend time at Neuralink. So Neuralink has done tremendous things for the field of neurotechnology, I think through focusing the interest of talented people on the field and also for sure has brought investment dollars into this space also. Yeah. And remember that Neuralink started in 2016 and uh, how the world was thinking about contemporary artificial intelligence was changing at that time as it continues to change now. All of that is changing at a very rapid pace yeah. and how to predict an exponentially evolving field is always challenging and fraught with wrong predictions. Yeah. So if you ask me to predict the future of will people who don't have a something perceived to be wrong with their brain or nervous system want a, an implant in 10 or 20 or 30 years, I, I honestly don't know. Right now, we're focused uh, squarely on the medical side of brain-computer interfaces, and there's so much good to be done there and so many people who, who need the t this technology as a medical device that I think it's a, it's a great place to start. And it, certainly if we deliver very, very, very well, which I certainly hope we will and have every reason to believe that we will, then maybe there's room to think about enhancement. Because I do think it is interesting, again, just in this kind of current AI phase we're in, that I believe Neuralink and OpenAI share the same building. That's definitely true. I mean, in the early days, there was, a, I think, a thinking that there would be very explicit collaboration in mm. a way that at least, I don't know whether that has materialized, but certainly the two companies have uh, public histories that don't speak to that kind of collaboration. Yeah, yeah. Lastly, just to get back to where you are with precision. So you were saying you expect to have your first device in a human this year. So what is the status there? Is that is that a trial or is that, how does that work? And, and I guess lastly, what is the FDA's bearing toward all of this? So we definitely are, uh, maybe obviously, but just to be very clear, definitely are going through a FDA clearance and FDA approval uh, for every precision product. We are collaborating with a number of academic medical centers currently. We anticipate that the first human uses of the technology will be through those collaborations. And I think probably to, to speak more about that, we'll have to wait until we've reached the technical milestones that will allow us to kind of unembargo that information. But certainly we very, very much look forward to, to those milestones in the, in the weeks and months ahead. And then just to kind of pull back and kind of conclude on this, I guess, if you go all the way back to what your dad was doing, how you started out in this field and where we are now, where you have people with these devices, you have yourselves, several others who are putting a new generation of devices into people's brains this year. Like when we step back how should we be thinking about this time in the technology's development and just trying to understand kind of where we are versus where we need to get? That's such a hard question to ask. You know, uh, uh, it's, it's really hard to zoom out in time and try yeah. to see try to see this moment in history. Uh, it's basically, I think it's an, almost an impossible question to ask, but maybe ask my dad, you know, what he thinks of, <laughs> what he thinks, uh, 
you know, what he thinks when he, when he looks at the field today, but probably, you know, I don't want to speak for, you know, for him, but I, I, I think when he was in his career where I am today, I think it was barely imaginable that the technology would be, I mean, the science fiction hadn't even been, been quite written. If you think about that, what the science fiction was looking like at, at a particular time, you know, which is usually a, a generation ahead or, or so mm -hmm. of reality, uh, maybe more in some, in some cases, but Neuromancer, I think was the first shades of maybe what different people read different things, you know, but, yeah. but that, that era of science fiction kind of presaged the thinking about what might be possible in, in brain computer interfaces maybe in a utopian or dystopian way, but you, I think you get what I'm trying to say. Yep. 40 years ago, it was very hard to imagine what we're talking, what you and I are talking about now. And so if you think, you know, what will we be talking about 40 years from now? Exoskeletons and superhumans. Maybe. I mean, maybe that will be so passe uh, hmm. in, in 40 years, but you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know. What's key, I think, is not to think about what could be in 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years, but really how do we advance the technology that we know to be workable, Yeah. right? And I think that's, that is what we have been squarely focused on at Precision is realizing in a scalable, safe, FDA-approvable manner the benefits of neurotechnology that have been shown possible, you know, in small isolated cases and in academic science over the last 20 years and engineering that as a medical standard of care. And that is possible in the coming years. It will be possible to deliver, you know, the benefits of assistive communication, interaction in a seamless way with the digital ecosystem, some forms of neuroprosthetic, neuromotor and neurospeech prostheses. That is all, you know, well within our grasp. Um, it will take coordinated efforts with, you know, regulatory bodies and the insurers and the, all the practical details of how a medical system really works to make that possible. But it is scientifically and from an engineering standpoint possible. And that's what I think those of us in the field, certainly at Precision, are squarely focused on. Those are the steps we need to take to get to the 40 years from now future that we are dreaming about. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Ben for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews. I say this every week and I do mean it. Thank you for spreading the word. It does help keep this ship afloat so please keep doing that i am going to be writing a big piece on the brain computer interface stuff for the magazine sometime over this next month so do keep an eye out for that and i'm also writing about a bunch of other stuff in the paper so pick it up this weekend or just go on to thetimes.co.uk and check it out you know on the web the interweb you can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson or email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 